0: you will, please open in your Bibles to Psalm 130, Psalm 130, toward the middle of your Bibles is the book of Psalms, we're at Psalm 130, page uh, 518, if you'd like to use the Bibles we've provided for you in the seats in front of you, I do encourage you um, to have the, the Word of God open, it's my intention only to explain what is in God's Word, and so I want you to be looking at God's Word. We're, we're in the series called Look Up, where um, the nation of Israel is, is uh, making its way up the mountain of God. And they did this three times a year during the festivals to, to be in the presence of God in Jerusalem. And the songs that we're going through each week are the, the truths that the Lord wanted to sow into their hearts and to do so by their singing. These are pilgrim songs. And so these are the songs of Christians, Christians who are pilgrims making their way into the presence of God in heaven. And in this section of scripture, God is is filling us with reasons to look up to him. And in some of these passages, he's telling us to look up because he's telling us about what takes us down. And that is true, certainly of our passage this morning. If you look back in Psalm 129, verse 4, you see how the psalmist was rejoicing that the Lord is righteous because the psalmist had been taken down by the unrighteous people and he was celebrating how God is going to take down the unrighteous. And as if the psalmist is still thinking on the righteous judgment of God, we get to Psalm 130. And as he's reflecting on The certainty of infinite loss for sinners because God is righteous. The psalmist in Psalm 130 confesses, O Lord, I am a sinner too. What will your righteousness do to me? Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. O God, we are sinners and you are righteous. And just because we call ourselves Christians or attend a church does not mean that you will stop being righteous and start overlooking our sin. And so, God, we pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of our righteous Redeemer and open and enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know hope. And may know it in Christ. O God, do all this and more. By the power of your Spirit. Amen. If you will stand with me at the reading of God's perfect and inerrant word. Psalm 130. Here is God's word to you and to me this morning. A song of ascents. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait For the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. You may be seated. Our prayers are very revealing. What you pray, it it may be the, the best indication of who you are. Because what you are praying for are the things in your life that you're not leaving to yourself. What you pray for when you pray are the things, I guess you could say the only things, that you are actually leaving to the Lord. You pray for the things that you think will make up a good life for you. But that's not the only things you pray. You also pray... Your prayers are painting a picture of the bad life as well. I want to ask you to consider this morning. What is it that you pray that the Lord will take away from you? What is it that you pray? What threats do you see on the horizon? that stand in the way of the good life, of the good marriage? What what, what are you praying uh, that the Lord would take away these threats to your family or to your work or your finances or your health? I'm asking you to just be honest with what... Dangers you are waiting on the Lord to remove. In Psalm 129, the danger was real and the danger was clear. The danger was all those people out there who hate God and His people. They're afflicting me, oh God, would you rise up? But in Psalm 130, we see a clear and real danger. That is really consistently seen throughout the Bible, but probably, if we're honest, is not consistently seen in our prayers. Not consistently seen enough. What Psalm 130 teaches us is that our greatest obstacle is not their hatred of us, it's our hatred of God. That's why we just sang, if you deal with my sin... If it's all nailed on the cross, if it's all covered by your blood, then my soul will be well. It doesn't matter how Satan attacks me. It doesn't matter if the powers of hell come against me. If all of my sin is taken care of, then will my soul be well. But the, the other idea is that on the day of judgment, when Jesus comes and the clouds are rolled back as a scroll, In that moment, all the other things we pray about, they will be well. But if we have not had our sin dealt with, nothing will be well. Psalm 130 in a sentence is this. Forgiveness comes to those who wait. Psalm 130, the gospel truth is forgiveness comes to those who wait. Wellness for your soul will be yours if you wait on the Redeemer. I want to look at this passage in the two sections that I think it breaks up into. Uh, And the first section is in verses 1 through 4 where the psalmist is pleading from the pit. Verses 1 through 4, the psalmist is pleading from the pit. There was a mother in Africa who decided she did not want her baby any longer, did not want to provide for her baby, didn't want to put up with the baby's cries and needs, and so she threw that baby into a hole in the ground that the rest of the community was using as a toilet. And and after a while of the baby being used in that way, after the boy who would become B.J. Omandi, had been eaten by maggots. Just before he died, someone heard his cry and came for him. And that is the spirit of verses 1 and 2. The psalmist is crying out, Hear me. Hear me, Lord. This is a pilgrim. This is someone who belongs to the Lord, who, who wants to be with the Lord, whose treasure is to be with God and to be accepted in His sight. And this pilgrim is desperate in the deep, it says. Now, in the Bible, the depths that we read about in verse 1 and 2, they're, they're, they could be a reference to a pit or, or even in an ocean, And those who cry out from the depths are those who, if you just think about the imagery, they are distant from the one that they want to hear them. The one who can make a difference in in them experiencing their desperation in the depths. They are desperate because they have already tried to climb out. This pilgrim has already tried to climb out of the depths. And like baby BJ, could not, was unable, lacked the ability to get themselves out of the depths. The psalmist is teaching other fellow pilgrims like us, whenever you cannot climb out, you cry out. If you find yourself in a pit so deep that you despite all your efforts, cannot climb out, there is something left to do. When you are despairing of life, whenever you are drowning under the waves, you cry out, and clearly it's not to your mama. There are certain depths that your friends cannot help you out of because they lack the same abilities to climb out of those pits. You cry out, To the Lord, because notice what he's crying for. Notice what he's crying for at the end of verse 2. What he's pleading for in the pit is not something that humans can give. People can be merciful, but that is not the kind of mercy that he is crying out for. That's not the kind of mercy he is desperately needing. And so he cries out to the someone whose name is mercy. When we just read that in Exodus 34, Moses, remember he said, Lord, Yahweh, said his name, show me your glory. And God's answer to him in showing his glory was to say his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, who is merciful. He needs someone who is so characterized by being merciful that his name is mercy. What is absolutely essential to understanding Psalm 130. You know, there, there, there's a way to treat the Psalms. We talked about this when we first started going through the Psalms. Like it's a jukebox. You know. George Strait here. Andrew Peterson over here. You know, the, all of them are just detached from one another. They're not really related to one another. In fact, this is a book. And the Psalms all relate to one another. There's also a way to treat an individual psalm like the individual verses are lyrics from different songs that don't really connect to one another. I want you to be very clear that the psalmist who is crying out in verses 1 through 2, we're told what he's crying out for in verses 3 through 4. It's the same thing he's waiting for the Lord for in verses 5 and 6. We're not just getting one or two verses that will help you whenever you are being oppressed by other people. You can go to Psalm 129 for that, not Psalm 130. But there is something that has sunk the psalmist in Psalm 130. He is not needing mercy from the world. He is not needing mercy for the enemies out there. His enemy is in the pit with him. So in verses 3 and 4, he moves from saying, hear me, to forgive me. Forgive me. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark my sins, should write them down, should record them and respond to them, O Lord, my sins. He worships the same God he just rejoiced in in Psalm 129. Who righteously comes against sinners. Ultimately, what drowns our souls, according to verse verse 5, it is our souls. It is well with my soul. One thing has to be done for my soul to be well. What drowns our souls is not what anyone else has done to us. I just want to submit that maybe your prayers should more match Psalm 130, like more of them, Psalm 130, than Psalm 129. If I could just say that. Pray less about your delivery from people and more from your delivery from the shame that you deserve for your sin. I was reading this pastor's confession. One of of my heroes in the faith who recently fell into sin. I've learned so much from him. And he posted this confession of uh, an adulterous affair that he had. And in this confession, he was praising God that God did not let him get away. Because if you get away with sin, there will be a day when you don't get away. So before that day, the psalmist is drowning under the disciplining hand of that righteous God who does not play with sinners. He punishes sinners. The answer to the question asked in verse 3 is no one, no one will stand. No one will stand. Most everyone I talk to about the gospel, outside of my church, just people I'm, I don't know and i just meeting them and getting to know them. I'm talking to them about the gospel and talking about why would you need Jesus? Their answers are they don't need Jesus. They don't say it. But what they say is, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. But God's fine with it. Beloved, it's a lie. No one will stand. And the word if, the word if in verse 3, does not mean that He doesn't actually mark them down. Don't think, well, if this happened, goodness, no one would stand. But obviously, you don't mark our sins down. No, God has a perfect record of every detail, of every one of your sins and mine. If it were true that God doesn't actually record our sins, then the psalmist would not be in the depths. He would not be sinking in shame and drowning in despair. He would not be. If God, why am I taking this so seriously? No, God, you take this so seriously. Think about this for the nation of Israel. The Lord had ordered the slaying of millions of precious, spotless animals. For what? Hebrews says, for the unintentional sins committed by His people. All that blood. For sins they didn't mean to do. For sins they didn't even know they did the psalmist seems aware of sins that he's committed and he's drowning under the weight of his shame and he's saying in verse 3 lord don't let your counting of my sins lead to my condemnation he's crying out cover my sins that's why he's pleading for mercy for mercy for what i do not deserve you i deserve your wrath I'm asking you for mercy. Cover my sins. So friends, when we come to Psalm 130, we have to confess right away that the Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth has a ledger of my sin. And He has a ledger of your sin. In the hymn that was written about this psalm, we sing of secret sins and misdeeds dark. The sins that no one, no human has seen. Or you've been able to hide from at least the humans that matter most to you. There's a ledger and everything that is evil that you have thought about. And that you didn't actually carry out. He knows him. You have not fooled him. And if the Lord, this is what verse 3 is saying, if the Lord were just To respond and act upon his ledger. We would all be doomed. So please. I'm saying this as a pastor who has had very many conversations with people. Who think on the day of judgment they're going to enter a not guilty plea. His eyes are on his ledger, not your lies or your deception of thinking you're better than other people. And therefore, you're good enough. The psalmist is crying out, turn your ear to me. You're hearing a lot of prayers right now. Lord, don't miss mine. Turn your ear to mine. Bend down and hear my desperate call, way down here in the depths that I've gotten myself into because of my sin. And the psalmist says that the Lord is heard. So the Lord does not just have a ledger of sin, He also has a book of the Lamb that is the answer to all of the sins. Of all of His people. And for all of our sins, it couldn't be a lamb that was sufficient for our unintentional sins. It had to be a different kind of sacrifice that God Himself would give, not just for the people of one nation, but God gave His Son to have flesh, so that His flesh might be cut and He might be killed So that his blood might cover all the sins of the souls of souls from every tribe, nation, people and tongue. Jesus sang Psalm 130 for us. What I'm saying is Psalm 130 sings about Jesus. We're singing about Jesus when we read Psalm 130. But I'm also saying that... Jesus sang Psalm 130, verses 1 and 2. Now, how can that be? That Jesus was in the depths of shame. It wasn't because of his sin, beloved. It was because of yours and mine. And he could sing it because he really bore it. And he bore it all, all of our shame for all of our sins. On the cross, as you'll hear from Adam later, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He became sin and so experienced this for us so we wouldn't have to. And God heard His cry. God pulled His Son out of the pit of His grave. And what that means... In the New Testament is when God raised Jesus from the dead and pulled him out of the depths there of his despair and bearing our shame. What that means is that Jesus has satisfied fully all of God's wrath for the sins of all of his people, all of his anger personally directed at his people. Jesus took it all and then was raised from the dead as a sign that God has accepted that. Why? 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 O oh God, why should I gain from your reward? Why love us so deeply that you didn't spare your only son? Why have you answered my cry for forgiveness in so costly a way? The end of verse four tells us. You see that purpose word at the end of verse four? That, or yours might say so that? That is the reason why He answers the cry. For forgiveness. It says, doesn't it, that it's so that Christians might take their forgiveness for granted. It's he killed his son so that all who were forgiven would treat their sin lightly and never talk about it and never confess it. And always try to hide it and act it like they're perfect at church, or ignore it altogether and not, don't think it matters at all. Why have you answered my cry for forgiveness? It's so that the forgiven could presume upon God's mercy and just go on sinning freely, and because they know on the day of judgment, they'll be fine. No, the forgiven sin, and they are right in the pit. They're not okay with their sin. Let's look at the text. What does the text actually say? Why would you forgive? Verse 4, so that you would be feared. That's why he did it. That's why he did it. Make no mistake, friend. The goal of forgiveness is the fear of God. The goal, the purpose... The reason God forgives is so that those who are forgiven would fear Him. And let me let you in on something. When God sets a goal for Himself, He's pretty good at getting His goals. And so what you know from verse 4 is that everyone who God forgives fears Him. They tremble at betraying Him again. I don't want to ever do it again. And we fear Him by trusting that His ways of behaving are the better ways. So we don't want to go on in sin. Isn't this the way that the psalmist has already defined the fear of God for us? Psalm 128, two psalms before, verse 1. Let me summarize verse 1. Everyone who fears the Lord walks in His ways. Everyone who fears the Lord walks in his ways. Sin is what sunk us into despair. It is what separates us from our beloved. The psalmist doesn't want that. He wants to be forgiven, not so that he'll feel better in his sin. Not so he'll feel better and keep on sinning. He wants to be forgiven because he loves the Lord. He knows What is the great enemy that makes him miserable? And so the forgiven are rescued so that they may not get there again, no matter how often we actually end up there. We were drowning in despair because we did not walk in his ways because we did not fear God and therefore the solution god shows us mercy so that we will walk in his ways and not be sunk forgiveness comes to those who wait the second half of the psalm is in verses 5 through 8 where the psalmist goes from pleading from the pit to then waiting for the redeemer, waiting for the redeemer. Notice when I summarize Psalm 130, I did not say, "Forgiveness might come to some who wait." It's not a might or a sum. Forgiveness comes to all who wait. Verse 5, the psalmist is transitioning from just praying and pleading to the Lord. It seems like in verse 5, he turns to a different group and he's speaking to the Lord's people. Basically, do what I do. This is what all of us should do. If you are a pilgrim, you are a sinner. And therefore, this is how you should respond to your sins. And the first word that he pronounces to the rest of the community of God is verses 5 and 6. He says, he will come. He will come with mercy. We've we've pled with him for mercy. He's coming. That's what he says. Now, by now, you probably know well enough that I am an avid hunter. Like I'm an awesome expert at hunting hunting. And really, I always have been from the very first time I went out. Can I share with you about my first time out? I went out and I was sitting uh, in a field, uh, not in a stand. I'm an expert. I hunt on the ground. And so I was sitting in a field and my friends just left me there. It was still dark and I had my rifle ready for the lights to come up. I'm waiting for the lights to come up. And while I'm sitting there... For the first time, um, I also have a pistol in my hand because uh, there might be something short range, you know, that comes up. I'm convinced that I will be um, bitten by a snake before the light comes. I'm convinced that there is right behind me some wildcat, whatever is indigenous to this area, and they're about to take my neck. I'm totally convinced that I'm not going to make it. And so I was waiting for the dawn. I was desperate for the dawn, but it wasn't to kill something. It was so that my ride would finally show up and I could get out of this place. And the psalmist's soul, the psalmist's soul is like the night watchman of a city. And, And the night watchman who's guarding the city His eyes are constantly searching and listening for dangers until the morning dawns. He is restless. He is vigilant. He's worried. He doesn't want the predators to take him or the city. And all of that makes the watchman desperate for the dawn. Don't flip over in verses 5 and 6 and start thinking that this is about something different. Don't hear that our souls are like the night watchmen and and we're we're desperate for the dawn. When is the dawn going to break? And what we're desperate for is that the the enemy armies or poverty or disease or slander are going to attack us. And what we're waiting for is the dawn when those threats are taken away from us. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the same thing he's been singing about all along. He's afraid of his sin. That is what will take his soul. That is what will kill his soul. And when he sins, he feels it most of all. My soul is like the watchman who's desperate for the morning except that the pilgrim's soul in regard to his own sin is more desperate, according to verse 6. We are watching with more desperation than those night watchmen are watching because we know that our sin is more deadly than those armies. That is the danger. It is our sin. So we're more desperate, but we're also more confident. And this is what I want you to see Beloved, if you know yourself to be a sinner and you are not a Christian, if you don't know yourself to be a sinner, if you know your sin and you're afraid of your sin and you're pleading for mercy because of your sin and the shame that has been brought to you by God's grace in your sin, I want you to see it is not just that we're more desperate than people who are afraid of armies because we're afraid of our sin. We are also more confident than the watchmen who are waiting for the morning. More than the watchmen who are waiting for the morning. I want you to be encouraged, Christian, if it is the forgiveness from shame that you have earned for your sin, if you are watching Jesus for that, you should be encouraged by Psalm 130 because just think about the image he's given you. How many nights that you know of, how many evenings. End at dawn. If you just put a percentage on it. How many evenings, just in your lifetime, I'm not saying you have to know every, what percentage? Every one of them. So the psalmist is singing, how many, how many of my soul Sinking sins will Jesus forgive every one of them. He will come with mercy. Keep waiting. Keep watching. He's coming. But then he says in verses 7 and 8, another word to the people of Israel. He will redeem. He will redeem Israel You should see the pattern. He is absolutely desperate and absolutely confident. He's coming and he's going to redeem us. The psalmist wants every pilgrim, everyone going to heaven. He's not just concerned for his own sin. Don't just be concerned with your own sin. Pilgrims are concerned about other people's sins and that they get to heaven. He's concerned with all people going to heaven. That, that we all would confess our sin with the confidence that the Lord will redeem every pilgrim from every soul-sinking sin. I want you to see who he's talking about. Verse 7, it's not the whole world. He doesn't say he's going to redeem Egypt or Babylon. It's Israel. It's Israel who has hope. Four, verse 8 the Lord to redeem or buy by his blood out of the pit, out of sin, out of shame. It's God's covenant people. Now, Israel's a lot bigger than it used to be. Israel is now made up of people from every tribe, nation, tongue, according to the New Testament. But you, I don't want you just to assume this means everyone. Forgiveness is a blessing that only people who are in covenant with God receive. That's why, two times in this psalm, the psalmist has chosen words from the Lord's covenant with Israel. That's why we read Exodus 34 earlier, because the psalmist is clearly thinking about who the Lord revealed himself to be. He said, Remember, in his re- revelation of himself to Moses, he said, I am merciful and abounding in steadfast love. Both terms in our psalm. He says, you got to be with the Lord. you got to be with the Lord. With the Lord. Are you with him? With the Lord is steadfast love. And the proof is, if you're with the Lord, is that you'll be forgiven in in, in such a way that the blood of Jesus will actually have the power to make you fear him now and walk in his ways. There's proof that you are with the Lord, that you are part of Israel. It's because he's ransomed you. He's redeemed you. He's bought you out of what? Out of slavery to your sin so with the remaining time, what I want to do is just imitate the psalmist who in verse, verse 5 turns to God's people and calls them to hope. Calls them to a confident hope. And what I want to do is turn to you. And I want to call you to a confident hope in the Redeemer. I don't assume that everyone here is walking in the ways of Jesus, I don't assume that everyone here is living for Jesus because I don't assume that everyone here wants to live with Jesus. Like the Jesus of the Bible is maybe not your treasure. And, and for you, I want you to hear me say that there is a day coming when your comparisons of yourself to other people that makes you feel better where all the things you say about how the reason you are the way you are, the reason you did the thing you did is because of what someone else did to you. There's a day coming when you being comforted by other people doing the same things that you do and so you feel like it's fine. You, they, they may call themselves Christians and, and they do them so that it must be a Christian thing to do. There's a day coming when none of that will make you stand. You won't stand. Only the people who God has a covenant with, that's why he says Israel, with Israel, only they will be forgiven. Which means all the rest of the world will sink into hell for their sins. I just want to appeal to you. You're not going to climb out. That is a pit you won't climb out. But listen, if it's sin, if it is sin that is sinking you, I just want you to be logical. If it is sin that you've committed against God that has sunk you in this moment. And right now the spirit is doing something. And you're feeling sunk by your own sin. Listen to me. Your only hope logically has to be the one you sinned against. He's the only one you can hope in. If your sin is against God. Then your only hope is in the one you sinned against. That is, unless unless God is not righteous, maybe God does let the guilty go unpunished. Then, then you don't have to hope in, in God. Or, or, or maybe you don't have to hope in God alone. He's your only hope and not you and none of your friends and no preacher and no church. And maybe you know someone who's more powerful than God and maybe they're going to stand in front of you. There is no one. There is no one except for Jesus. There is Jesus. The New Testament picks up this language and says that the dawn of redemption that we were waiting and watching for was the day of his birth. On the day that Jesus appeared, Paul says, when Jesus appeared, our night watch was over our blessed hope of redemption finally came. So if you look in verse 4, that is singing of Jesus. With Jesus, there is forgiveness. Verse 7 is singing of Jesus. With Jesus, listen, there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption so that if you are drowning in your shame, praise God and your only hope is God. Your only hope is if God is full of mercy and, friend, He is full of mercy. Look at the Lord Jesus and with whatever breath you have, cry out to Him and repent of your sins and He will fully forgive you. But I also want to speak to pilgrims, those who are on their way to heaven And I want to encourage you to wait for your Redeemer in three ways from this psalm. Wait for your Redeemer in three ways. And I want to encourage you to write this down for yourself or take this in for yourself. You should wait for your Redeemer. But verses 7 and 8, it's a psalmist saying it to the people of God. And so you should know about these things so that you can be of good use to your brothers and sisters in the church. To call and encourage and remind us to wait for our Redeemer in these three ways. First of all, Hope for forgiveness because of Jesus' steadfast love. In my experience, the biggest threat to me holding on to hope and continuing to to wait with hope and watch that I will be forgiven. I am threatened from losing that hope whenever sin sinks me and then Satan lies to me. I'm not alone in this. When you sin, it is when you sin and you're in the depths that Satan will come with his version of truth, which is he's not coming. Not for you. Jesus isn't coming after you did this. And beloved, I just want you to remember the real truth. God's own son has already come. And He has already accomplished all that is needed for all of your forgiveness. And He is going to come back. And He's going to finish all the consequences of what He's already... The guaranteed certain coming consequences of all where, what He's already done at the cross. And He will give you final relief and rescue from the sorrows of your sin. I want you to see, though, that the key to holding on to that hope is in verse 7. How is it that I can hope that He's going to forgive me? It's because He said, He's going to come. You can keep waiting. You can keep watching to receive that forgiveness because He has steadfast love. It's not the cheap love you know in this world. I love you if you are lovely or if you're loving me well. No, even when you don't love him well, he is still steadfastly. Our sin is not going to stop him from steadfastly forever loving us in this way. Second, hope for plentiful redemption. Hope for plentiful redemption. That's the word in verse 7. Our redemption is plentiful in at least two ways. One, He is freeing us from sin's condemnation and from sin's command. He's redeeming us in a plentiful, full way, which means He's not just making us feel better about our shame and taking away sin's condemnation. He is redeeming us more than that and, and freeing us from sin's control. His blood has plentifully redeemed His people, taken away the presence of shame and the power of sin. That is redemption. We are freed to fear Him, He says. We are ransomed for the purpose of revering Him. Not from some of our sins, all of our sins. He has given us power over. And so we just heard from Andy from 1 John. Right? That when we see Him, when He appears, when He actually comes in the fullness, and we will be just like Him, him uh, in that moment. And, and in this hope, those who will see Him purify themselves as He is pure. Get this. In the hope of one day being like the Son of God, every child of God lives in a kind of hope that purifies ourselves because He is pure. What it means is if you're a child of God, the thing you want most is to be like the Son of God. And He is totally pure. And you don't want your sin and impurities. And so, in the hope of one day being fully, when I see Him face to face and the power comes over us in a fresh way, In the hope of that purity, I'm determined to purify my life of all sin. And the power doesn't come from me. The power comes from Him. The second way that our redemption is plentiful is that Jesus frees, listen, every Israelite from all iniquities. Obviously, I'm using Israelite for Christian here. All Christians from all iniquities. That means your hope for redemption should be on the level of believing and telling others there is no sin too big. There is no sin too big for him to forgive. There is no sin that he will not forgive of his people. Now, may that be true in this church. May that truth be told and shown in this church. May we as a church be as quick to forgive as our Redeemer is sure to come with forgiveness. Third and finally, from verse 5, hope in the Lord's word for forgiveness. What I want to encourage you to do is not some mind trick. Not some mind trick when you're in the pit. Don't try to climb out with some trick of your mind like feeling these you know, good feelings or whatever about how you're going to be forgiven. This isn't wishful thinking in any way. And when we tell our brothers and sisters, He's going to redeem you. He's going to redeem you. When we tell our own souls, He's coming with mercy. We are hoping not in our thoughts. We are hoping in the certain promises of the one who cannot lie and who is always faithful. Christian, Jesus loves you. He loves you. Even when you sin, He loves you. And Jesus will not let you sink into hell. Christian, Jesus will take away all of your shame. He is coming to you, not because I say so, but because the Bible says so. Forgiveness comes to those who wait. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us faith. Give us faith in in the Redeemer. In the fullness of your answer. You did not wink at our sin. You died for our sin. You bore the wrath for our sin, Lord Jesus. And Father, you accepted his sacrifice for our wrath. And you raised him to raise us and to purify us. So, God, we pray that you would make us those who fear you and trust you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.